Before we go to the book of Hebrews, I'd like to invite everyone to grab a copy of the Pillars of Truth. You have those somewhere in the pew or close by you, behind you, next to you. And um, we're going to turn to page number 43. Uh, For our visitors today, um, the Pillars of Truth for Baptist churches, this is just very simply a collection of three historic documents confessional and catechetical documents that the old Baptist wrote and it is an expression of what they believed the Bible taught and so it's a in a way a system of theology a set of doctrines and now we read this before we go into our sermon because especially for the sake of the young ones here today I want you um, to focus upon the truth of what's contained here on page 43 the doctrine or the biblical teaching that we call the perseverance of the saints. We're going into this long catalog in chapter 11 of Old Testament faithful believers. And in it all, we're going to learn this one simple truth, but it's a powerful truth because that's the whole intent of the book of Hebrews is to help them persevere to the end. And here we have this beautiful, concise statement of the perseverance of the saints. And so if you leave here today... And I'm going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to get into the book of Enoch and Enoch and all this stuff. If you leave here today, this is the one thing that I want you to take away. And um, for our visitor today, dear brother, we, we'd like to give you a copy of this book. It's a really valuable book. It is not scripture, uh, but it's a good, concise explanation of scripture. So let's look here at the perseverance of the saints together on page 43. Those whom God has accepted in the Beloved effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end, and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, whence he still begets and nourisheth in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon, notwithstanding, Through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession they being engraven upon the palm of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. Well, I think this wonderfully sets up for us once again the text that's before us today in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews that has been concentrating on the topic of enduring faith. Enduring faith, the type of faith that helps you make it unto the end. 
Let us open up our Bibles and draw our attention to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to back up to help set the flow and the context to chapter 10 and begin reading at verse 31, 10.31 down to 11.5. Follow along in your Bibles as I read. The word of the Lord says, It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while ye were made a gazing stock, mocked, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions with them or of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which He obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaks. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. I love the old hymns of the faith. They're full of so much practical doctrinal truth. They aid us in our journey as Christians in this pilgrim journey that we are all in. And among them, there's one that we sing often here, Take time to be holy, and you you know the words, but let me bring them uh, before you again. And one stanza in that old hymn, the hymn writer says, Take time to be holy, the world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. These lines, beloved, from this hymn, they cause us to pause and reflect that as the world rushes on, and us too, by extension, being in the world, that there is much more to our human existence than merely existing. Take time, 
as the world is rushing on. Well, why do you need to take time? Well, as the hymn is reminding us, we are in great need of being reminded to pause and take time to meditate and to be reminded of the spiritual things of God and our lives as they belong to Him and the purpose of our lives. And while there is indeed an area of all of our lives where there is a need for healthy routine, uh, mine oftentimes feels like it's a hectic schedule, but we are reminded, even though we have healthy routines, that there's much more than simply going through the motions of life in order to someday return back to the dust of the ground. And this hymn reminds us of that. Take time as the world rushes on. Spend time alone with Jesus. Now the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God created us, created Abel, created Enoch, created all humanity for His glory. I liked how the reading in the New Testament Scripture, Romans 16, emphasized that at the end. It's all for His glory. And therefore, since this is true, the ultimate purpose of man, according to Scripture, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There's one place in the New Testament where this aspect of our entire existence, that we're to pause and take time and to consider and meditate upon, is brought to the surface in 1 Corinthians 10.31, many of you know it. it, it goes like this, whether you eat, whether you drink, whether, whatever you do, what's it say? You do all to the glory of God. This perspective of our existence as man for the glory of God, and much more so as Christians, beloved, listen carefully, it, it is an important part of enduring faith. It's a crucial element to enduring faith. Enduring faith, which we have been looking at for several weeks now, which has been the emphasis in the topics from uh, the topic, rather, from the latter half of chapter 10 going into chapter 11, all the way to the beginning of chapter 12. It is the type of faith that will enable us to not lose focus on why we exist while we are here in this pilgrim journey, serving Christ until He returns, or until we pass through the veil of physical death to meet Him in glory. Now, seeking to help us to cultivate this enduring faith, this inspired writer to the book of Hebrews is setting forth again an individual from the catalog of the Old Testament saints who exemplified a particular characteristic of enduring faith. Last week, we looked at the enduring faith of Abel. And we learned from Abel how that enduring faith, which was given to him by God, it wasn't a dead faith, but rather it was a lively faith, which was especially connected with his worship of God that manifested in his life what we called evangelical actions. And those actions evidenced a heart that did what? longed for and expected that God would fulfill his promise. Well, what was his promise in the context of the revelation that Abel had received up until that point? His promise that he made to Abel's parents in the Garden of Eden because of the transgression of their first sin 
was that he would send a Messiah someday to do what? Crush the head of the serpent who would only breeze the heel of the promised Messiah. Abel believed this. Abel, after a hundred, we, we looked at that last week, scholars believe 120, 130 years, a long time, especially in our context. Abel, Brother Scotty, never stopped believing that promise. And his worship, his life, it manifested such evangelical actions or obedience. And thus, through enduring faith, Abel never lost hope. He never gave up believing in or trusting upon the one, the true, the living God of all of creation. Well, today, the inspired writer draws our attention to one of the most mysterious figures of the pre-flood, or you could say anti-Diluvian period in redemptive history. And the man's name is Enoch. If last week Abel's example helped us to see that enduring faith is a faith which is alive with actions and connected to a steadfast, consistent worship of God, I pray that we all will appreciate how today In Enoch's example, it helps us to understand that the type of faith that endures to the end is one that lives with a purposeful, purposeful, say that sometimes, purposeful perspective. A purposeful perspective. So how do I address, or how do I suggest we approach this verse here in verse number five? By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated, God had raptured him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased, or we'll see in Genesis 5.22, he walked with God. Well, let's first consider this verse by looking at Enoch's biography and then his historical context. I don't know when's the last time any of you looked into Enoch or his life, or when he lived, or whatever, but it would help us just to go in to who he was. Because this inspired writer thought it very important to use him as an example for us today in this call to cultivate enduring faith. Here, once again, the inspired writer is drawing our thoughts and our attentions to the dawn of human history, to this man named Enoch. Now, Enoch is the seventh from Adam, in the godly line of Seth. There was an Enoch in the line of Cain, but we're talking about the one that came through the descendancies of Seth. Seth was the son that was uh, the next born to Eve that she, 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 she brought forth after the murder of Abel that we learned about last week. And all we know about Enoch is found in this passage here, here in Hebrews 11.5, and two other passages. The first passage is Genesis 5, 21 through 24, and Jude 14 and 15. And so there's very little we really have in Scripture about him. From the book of Genesis, we learn that he was born between 3400 B.C. and 3300 B.C. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I get back into the pre-flood period of history, any of you have been to my study in my office, you see I have a big giant poster. I think this thing's like three foot tall by four foot wide. And it's this color-coded chart of uh, redemptive history. 
And I, and I love it because it helps me to see that the Bible, while we must always approach it as a spiritual living book, it is also a very accurate history book, kids. And so when we start talking about these dates, uh, we learned that Enoch lived between 3,400 B.C., somewhere between then and 3,300 B.C. We're getting a glimpse that this history, this story, this narrative that's being discussed all throughout the Bible is about real people. It's just not coloring book fairy tales and stories. Such that Enoch was a real man. Noah was a real man. And so Genesis, from, from Genesis, we learned that he was born between this period, and he lived, we know from Genesis, for 365 years, fathering his first son, Methuselah. Now, all of you guys have heard that name. He was the man who lived the longest in the Bible, 969 years. Enoch was his father. After Methuselah, we learn from Genesis 5 that he had other sons and daughters. But now, just after kind of a biography of who this guy is, this is, you know, when he lived, to properly understand the historical context that surrounded Enoch, which I believe is what adds to his example, which adds to his legacy that we're supposed to get in verse 5, why he's being brought into the catalog of the Hall of the Faithful in Hebrews 11, we must first appreciate, or at least fully appreciate, the epic struggle between good and evil that was initiated in the Garden of Eden just after the fall, which is called the Proto-Evangelium. This epic struggle that this man Enoch that lived between 3400 and 3300 for 365 years, what was the historical context around him to help aid you and understand why he set forth in his example? Well, to understand the fullness of that epic battle and struggle, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Let's go back and get a refresher course of what led up to the historical context in which Enoch lived and existed and ministered which demonstrated and exemplified enduring faith. Genesis 3. Here we have the pronouncement of the curse and the setting up of the stage of the epic struggle between good and evil, which we're going to find Enoch so closely connected to. Here we see in Genesis 3.14, after the first fall of Adam and Eve, the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon the belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and the woman's seed. Brothers and sisters, from this point forward, Satan, who is a fallen archangel, whose scripture identifies as the father of lies, along with other rebellious fallen angels, relentlessly orchestrate 
still to this day, spiritual warfare against the one true and living God and all of those, Abel, Enoch, Noah, who believe in Him and who worship Him. This is an epic conflict started at the very beginning of human history. Throughout history, as God's enemy, Satan here in Genesis 3, being cursed by God, has sought to thwart every plan of God unsuccessfully. Amen. He didn't see the cross coming. He didn't know what that was all about, really. He didn't fully comprehend it. And he has also, throughout human history, sought to harm the human race and, if possible, lead them away, blind them, deceive them, keep them from the knowledge, the worship, the belief of the one true and living God. History chronicles for us the saga of war and conflict, which again uh, is presented being ignited between the two seeds of Scripture. The seed of God, rightly interpreted, being Jesus Christ, and all of those through faith who belong to Him. The seed of God. And the war and the struggle that's been ignited again and again between that seed and Satan's seed. Or we could say rightly interpreted being unregenerate men. Paul calls them, Jude calls them lovers of sin, haters of God and God's ways. This is the epic beginning of time where the struggle and the conflict erupted. Now last week, we learned about the very first real life collision between these two seeds. The real life, you could say, in the real world incident that happened between this seed, this ungodly, wicked seed of Satan and the man Cain who killed Abel, his own brother. And because of Cain's own anger, jealousy, and rejection of God, he took a decisive action against the righteous seed, Abel who represented the sons of men who would worship the one true living God. And so we see a picture there of this struggle and this epic battle being played out, don't we? And as a result, the unrepentant Cain, he was cursed by God in Genesis 4.11. God says there to Cain, Now art thou cursed from the earth, which has opened up her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. This punishment from God was met on the part of Cain. Satan's seed with further hardness of heart, not softness, not brokenness. It was met with bitterness and blame, which drove Cain and his descendants, drove Cain and his posterity, his seed, into all the ways of violence, debauchery, lewdness, all forms and practices of darkness. And from approximately 3900 B.C. to 3350 B.C., for 550 years, Cain's seed would begin to advance in all ways of weaponry, of warfare, imaginations of evil, torture, dominion, dominancy. And it eventually would culminate in the sixth son in the line of Cain, which would have been his great, great, great-grandson, and a man whose name was Lamech. Scripture distinguishes Lamech significantly for his arrogance, his presumption, and his inventive ways of wickedness. He was, Lamech was the first one who committed polygamy, recorded in Scripture, who took upon him multiple wives. We're painting the picture of the historical context 
of when Enoch lived, who walked with God. Regarding Lamech, listen to what he said. Many of you have probably read this before. He read, he says in Genesis 4, 24, with his chest puffed out after 550 years since his great-great-great-grandfather began the war against the righteous seed. And here's Lamech in all of his ways of weaponry, all of his lustful ways of fulfilling the pleasure of his life. He said this, If Cain, my great-great-grandfather, is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. So what's Lamech doing there? He's saying, I'm 70 times tougher and badder than my descendant patriarchal grandfather Cain. That's how wicked this line of Satan was. This seed of Satan was. And here where it gets interesting when we come to Enoch. Just about at that time of the great rise of Lamech, Enoch was born through the godly line of Seth. Now Seth, he would have passed down and he would have discipled his sons. He would have discipled his descendants in the way of the one true and living God. He would have told them, this is the battle. This is the conflict. What you see out here surrounding us led by Lamech. What you see is really a manifestation of something that happened many centuries ago with our parents, Adam and Eve. And he would have discipled him and he would have told him the proto-evangelium, the great promise of God, the one true living God, who you cannot see, who is not speaking to us, but has spoken to us. And therefore we will not mingle with them. Therefore, we will not marry with them. Therefore, we will not adapt their ways. And therefore, we will walk with the one true living God. You see, Seth would have discipled Enoch. Enoch would have passed on the gospel to Methuselah. Methuselah would have passed it down to Noah. And all of these men before this great period were standing in the middle of immense eclipsed darkness. Your minds cannot even begin to imagine in the greatest science fiction horror movie that could ever be written of what was really and actually being done by the wickedness of the line and the seed of Satan. They understood very well why they existed. To serve themselves at all costs. And as we shall see, this is the historical context in which Enoch is born. Pause and think for a moment that after Enoch's rapture, only 70 years goes by before the birth of Noah, who then brings about a ministry which culminates at a time in human history where there is only eight people in all human civilization who are believing in the proto-evangelium. Up until the point of Noah, there was only eight people in the entire world who were still believing in the one true living God. Who were still fighting the one true battle. Only eight people who still are holding on to the purpose of their created existence. That's the context in which Enoch is surrounded by. 
It's a time of intense in your face, day in and day out conflict between the followers of the devil and the followers of God. In these days of Enoch, who the man we're reading about today, there was no middle ground, friends. In these days, there was no neutrality. In these perilous times, you either walked in the ways of Cain and his seed, or you distinctly walked in the ways of Seth, in the ways of God, such as Enoch did. Enoch woke up every single day hearing the screams and the cries of human sacrifices. Enoch walked every day along the pagan temples, perhaps over the hill or on the highways and the byways. And he could smell the stench of all the filth that was going on in those civilizations. And he had to make a stand and he had to consistently say, the one true living God's promise is still true. We're decreasing in numbers. It seems as though they're growing. I heard another village was taken captive by Lamech and his men. I heard that the break-off group from Lamech, I'm using sanctified imagination here, it's okay, was, has taken over another village that stood for the one true living God and snuffed it out. And I heard that my, my cousin, who knows the truth of the one true living way, he actually rejected the one true living God and he took the mark of Cain. This is who Enoch is when he was born and the surroundings in which he lived in. What the Bible says here in verse number 5, look back at the text here, is that this man Enoch, who we're just introduced to, he was translated. By faith, Enoch was translated, the text says. This means, you know, raptured. It means taken away. He was translated in some way or another. We don't have all the details. But uh, the composition of his physical body was changed, maybe kept the same, but it was transported through this physical created realm into a different realm. So let us consider now Enoch's rapture or his translation and our own hope. Now regarding Enoch's supernatural rapture in connection with Enoch's faith, it says in the text, by faith Enoch was translated. We should rightly understand, beloved, that the text does not mean that Enoch's faith was the means of his rapture to heaven, but that the rapture, the action that happened to him to another realm, was God's sovereign act in response to Enoch's faith, or that is the manifestation of his life because of his faith. So his faith wasn't what um, earned him the transport, It wasn't that he lived a good life and it earned him and he was owed the transport. No, it was God looking down upon Enoch, knowing Enoch who walked with him in these perilous times. And God, out of a gracious, at least it was gracious to Enoch, to his wife and his sons and daughters who went out looking for him. The text said he couldn't be found. That's an interesting story we don't have in the Bible. You know, how long did they look? Missing person. They didn't have, you know, police department to call in and say our dad's not, you know, Enoch's gone. But you get the point here. God was gracious upon him and he translated him out of that sin, sick, dark, stinking world, didn't he? He was gracious. But God did it, beloved, not because Enoch earned it. He did it because 
He was just a sovereign, benevolent God. And I'm emphasizing this point because it provides us an opportunity to correct a popular error regarding Christian faith. Faith, beloved, enduring faith, Christian faith, saving faith is not an object that we conjure up or emotionally hype up within ourselves in order to somehow move, force the opinion or the hand of God to bring about what we desire. That's not what faith is. Rather, faith is a gift from God and is given to us in order to place us and Him in our proper spheres of existence. He is creator and I am creature. And through faith, He gives us this proper perspective and as we know Him through our mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ, we know Him not just as creator, but we are able to know Him as Father. This proper understanding of faith is important because if we think that faith somehow is a spiritual tool for us to exercise in order to receive blessings that we desire or that we can muster up, then when those expected blessings don't come to pass, there's nothing more that's going to take the wind out of your sails of enduring faith than that type of garbage. You're going to start doubting. You're going to start questioning. And you can, for a season, as we read in the doctrine, a biblical doctrine of the persevered saints, fall into a season where, where, where what? Where you lose the joy of your salvation. You lose the proper perspective of your existence. And you can fall in a, a rut, especially when you're signing your tax check at the end of the year, thinking all life is about is paying taxes and dying. Oh, no, friend, it's not. It's not. It's about much more than that. And having the right understanding of faith helps us to keep that in focus. Now, while we don't know a whole lot surrounding how Enoch Prickly was taken up, we know uh, Elijah, it says, taken up in a whirlwind, a chariot of fire. We get a little bit of an imaginative description of that. Enoch, we don't have any of that. Uh, He could have Hannah just been walking with God in devotion, praying, and just... His clothes dropped to the ground. We really don't know. But what we do know is that, as we'll see in a moment, walking with God, God chose to bring Enoch into a different place of further revelation about the created cosmos. You read a lot of commentaries, and sometimes they say and they believe that Enoch was taken right into the presence of God. We can't be dogmatic about that. The text just doesn't say that. Nowhere else, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, indicates that. It could be possible, but it also could be possible that Enoch was taken into what we learned about, I don't know, a couple months ago, uh, Shehol, which is this holding place, Abraham's bosom, where there was a place, as many believe, uh, was a a blessed abode. It was a, a blessed place for those who were resting, waiting for the climactic moment when the promised Messiah in the Proto-Evangelium would come in time, space, and history and spill his blood and set free the captive as he descended in to set them free out of Shehold and bring them into the glorious realms of heaven. Enoch could have been there. All of this helps us to remember that there is more to this life in the created cosmos than what our eyes can see. When we get into these talks about being translated, where did he go in his translation? Where did he end up? What are the different realms of creation? It helps us to remember and take time to be holy and meditate upon the fact 
that Nolan, our life, our existence is much more than this. But it is this. All of this is part of those other places where we will be transported or we will be taken after death someday. We're promised that. And so like Enoch lived with that purpose and that understanding before he was translated, he believed there was somewhere else. He believed there was a God. And wherever he got transported by the grace of God for his own comfort, Enoch's comfort that is, out of that that darkened place that he was in at that time in history, it it did what? It, it, It helped him to remember that my existence while I'm here is to fight with all the grit, all the strength that I can muster by the Spirit of God for the purpose of the great conflict. I am not here, Enoch would have thought, to eat, drink, and be merry. I am here to tell them people the truth about the one true living God. Every single person that the seed of Satan through the line of Cain has shrouded with darkness, deception, ignorance, and blindness, I am set forth on this earth to walk with God and tell them the truth as we're going to see in a moment in his life. Now, before we start being crushed, remember when we start comparing ourselves with Enoch and we're like, oh, I don't do that at all. Remember what I said? These examples are set forth in Hebrews 11 to crush you and you're, 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 you're not living up to them. No, they're set forth to demonstrate for you a small characteristic of what enduring faith includes. And in Enoch's example, living and surrounded by such wickedness and darkness, and as me and Nolan were talking about Friday night over dinner, when you really step back and you take a look at the millions of babies that were slaughtering all the time because of the deception of the evil one, evil one and people's blindness, and they don't see what it really is, friends, the times are just as dark. They're, they're just as frightening. The battle, the conflict is just as real. Satan, in other words, hasn't waving the white flag. Has he? No, he hasn't. And so it causes us to re-examine my existence in this conflict in connection with the sphere that God has given me influence over. I have a job. I have co-workers. I'm a mother. And maybe I'm a stay-at-home mom. And I have kids. And I have the ability by God's grace to shape their thinking. To shape their mind. To put them through boot camp, as if it were. Now, the secular world don't like Christians talking like that. Satan and the line of Cain and the seed of Cain, they don't like us thinking like this. No, 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 no. They want us to think everything's on cruise control. They want us to think everything's fine. Just sit back. Take it easy. You see? But we don't have that privilege. Because the moment you take it easy and you forget the conflict that you're in with first yourself and your remaining sin, then the devil and the world, the moment we do that, brothers and sisters... We're failing to walk with God. Enoch 
was walking with God in the midst of that and he understood well the conflict. There was no neutrality. Well, coming back to his transport, sorry, I got down a rabbit trail here. Coming back to his transport, uh, we, we, we don't know exactly where he went, but isn't it interesting here? And, I, I, and this is what I would make out of it. Isn't it interesting that we have the first example, Abel, who's violently murdered, and then we have Enoch, who's taken out of violence. He's taken out of a violent world. He doesn't even experience physical death. And we could, if we weren't discerning and careful, we would think that maybe Enoch was more deserving of being raptured than Abel. Maybe there was just something going on with Enoch and a closer communion with God or something. That's why he left. And we could tend to think that Abel's murder, Abel's martyrdom really is what it was, brothers and sisters, was somehow just a you know, poor Abel. I mean, he kind of went through that. That's hard for him, you know. Um, and we may look at the martyrdom as being less glorious. And we would make an error in doing that. What, what could we make of this contrast between Abel and um, Enoch and Enoch's rapture and Abel's murder? Well, I think what we need to remember is the words of Jesus Christ in John 21 when he was talking with Peter before Peter was martyred. And as John interprets Jesus' words, he says, these are Jesus' words, Jesus to Peter said, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird up yourselves and walk wherever you wanted to. I'm paraphrasing this. But when you grew old, you will, the scripture says, stretch out your hand and someone else will, will lead you and bring you where you do not wish to go. That was the words to Jesus. And then John, being inspired by the Spirit and seeing what happened in redemptive history to Peter, John, the older, said this. He interprets it. Now this he said, referring to Jesus, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. So in Peter's martyrdom, it's described in the Scriptures as glorifying God. And I think when we consider the two ways in comparison of Abel and Enoch's physical lives, we end with a picture of what's intended to strengthen our understanding of what we are promised, whether we are raptured, like Enoch, or brothers and sisters, whether we die a slow, painful death, so long as we are mindful of our existence, mindful of the battle, mindful of why we were created and put on this terrestrial ball that we sung about, we're going to glorify God. It doesn't matter if you're going through cancer. As long as you're glorifying God as you go through that cancer, as tough as it would be, you can only do it if you say, dear son, dear daughter, I was only given this time here on this earth for one purpose, to teach you about the proto-evangelium. And now I'm going to suffer. And I have, an, I have an opportunity to glorify God in my suffering. To show that his strength is sufficient even in this very difficult time. And you're still going to be, what? A salt and light to the world around you, to the doctors, the nurses, your family members, so forth and so on. The Apostle Paul demonstrated his own struggle with whether or not he should uh, want to live or, or, or be in the presence of God. He understood that to die was to gain. He tells us in Philippians 1, for me, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Then he goes on to say, I am a straight betwixt two. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling between two things, having a desire to depart 
and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, he concludes, to abide in the flesh is more beneficial for you. That's a man again like Enoch who understood the purpose of his existence. Now we begin to get into Enoch's life. What did he do with this proper perspective in these dark times? Well, the text says before his translation or before his being taken up, before his rapture, Enoch had this witness. Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, you know that the, uh, the, the, the quote here, which is in the New Testament, the New Testament written in Greek, the Jews interpreted the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis 5 here. This is a citation of Genesis 5, talking about when, Gen- when Enoch walked with God. It says that he pleased God. And so when the Jews translated in the Septuagint, the Hebrew into the Greek, they translated it that he pleased God. That's not changing the meaning at all. It's just simply saying that in his walking, that's what he did. He pleased God. And so if you want, you can turn there. I can just read it for you. Genesis 5, 21 through 24 gives us an idea of Enoch's walk with God. Enoch, it says, lived 65 years and he uh, begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. And he he had sons and daughters and Enoch walked with God and he was not for he took him. He translated him. Brothers and sisters, this imagery here now that we're coming to the focus of Enoch's walk with God, this imagery, this language is also used of Noah. In Genesis 6-9, and also of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 48-15. And in these instances of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Enoch, it's describing these men who are of the seed of God. Um, speaking again, remember what I said, properly interpreted, the Messiah Christ, and all of those who believe in that proto-evangelism, that's the seed of God. This is a description of them keeping communion with God. Now, this isn't to be understood as some cute little just devotional time. They were consistent in their morning devotions. No, no, no. Their communion of God in descriptive terms and imagery of walking with God is that their worldview, their perception of things, which lived out in their actions, demonstrated a close communion and agreement with God's revelation. Now, brother, think about what revelation we have on this side of the cross. And think about the revelation that Enoch had and then Noah had. You could arguably say we got a fuller revelation. And so we come to these men in this dark predicament and we see, if I may, the limited revelation they possessed. And they still had such a commitment, such a devotion to keeping the right perspective of the proto-evangelium and the promise that guided their actions day in and day out. John Owen, remarking about this idea of walking with God, he says, quote, in his commentary on this passage, to walk with God is to lead a life of faith in covenant obedience unto Him. In all of our ways, our actions, our duties, to have continual regard unto God by faith in Him, dependence on Him, and submission unto him. Elsewhere in scripture, especially Acts 9.31, walking with God is characterized as proceeding, moving forward in the fear or the reverent respect of the Lord. Every decision of life. In the life of Enoch, we have an example of what I like to say, active exercising 
of enduring faith, which marks the whole course of his life. Now, I said a little earlier in the message that we don't know a whole lot about Enoch's life except for a few passages. We get some biographical and some historical data from Genesis 4. And then when we come to this portion of our message considering Enoch's walk with God, the next place in Scripture talks about Enoch is what gives us insight to his walk. And this is what I want to draw your attention to. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Jude. Turn your Bibles to Jude, and we're going to look at verses 14 and 15. Jude says this regarding Enoch, as we're trying to get an insight into his walk with God and some particulars about it. Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. He's going to tell us what Enoch actually preached, what he said. He prophesied of these. Who's who's the these? Well, the context here of Jude, you know, he's warning, right, the, the, the first century church of evil men creeping in unawares, who A.J. was talking about in Romans 16. Mark them. uh, Heed who they are. Stay away from them, Paul was warning. In the same general vein of concern, this, this apostle Jude is telling the church the same things. Watch out for these false teachers. So, using Enoch's prophecy, he's using it to parallel here. He says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these types of men, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now we see from this insightful passage that Enoch's walk was one that provides an example of faith which is not afraid of conflict. A faith which exists within the hearts and the minds of every regenerate believer and dwelt by the power and the Spirit of God who has stretched forth their hand, enabled by God to become a son of His, and lay hold of the proto-evangelium, we see that comes. what comes with that. What comes with enduring faith? What comes with what marks faith that will make it to the end is an element of not to be afraid to speak the truth. You remember what we just read in Hebrews 11 up there in chapter 10? Don't shrink back. The inspired apostle who wrote Hebrews said, if you draw back, if you shrink back, if you pull back, if you're embarrassed in any way of the truth, to your family members who are still enraptured with Judaism, trying to get you to go back to the bells and smells of Judaism. If you pull back, if you shrink back, if you try to hide, if you try to minimize, if you don't want to stand with your brothers and sisters who are contending for the truth, as you once were made a gazing stock with them, you once were willing to stand with them. If you draw back, if you pull back, I have no pleasure in you. You're on a slippery slope of evidencing, losing something that is a trait of enduring faith. Enoch exemplifying this, isn't he? Isn't he? I, I don't know how this looked, guys. I don't know how the distance was kept. We don't have the data in the Bible between the, the, the wicked 
seed of Cain and the, and the godly seed of Seth? Uh, ooh, did, they, did, they, did they have get-togethers, inter-family inner get-togethers? Right? Did they, did they trade amongst one another? Were they, they couldn't have been totally isolated. But the point is, is when there was interaction, Brother Aaron, we see from Jude, Enoch was about the business to say, hey, God's about to put the smack down on all of y'all. He's going to put it down real hard. But you can repent and you can turn back to the true one living God. Come and, 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 and place your faith in the promise that he made to our first parents. Of course, he was met. As we know, we get closer to Noah's time. He was met with ridicule. Enoch was. He was met with mockery. But for our purposes, we learned that enduring faith can be characterized by an individual's willingness to speak the truth without the fear of men. I don't know about you, but whenever the Holy Spirit makes clear to something to me in the Word of God, and I take a stand for that, even though it's unpopular perhaps in my family, or even amongst other people who identify as being Christians, Definitely, you're going to take a stand and it's going to be challenged in your workplace and et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know about you, but that doesn't, uh, that, 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 that doesn't make me shrink back. When the Holy Spirit shows me something true in the Word and I get some pushback on it or, or, or I get some kind of you know, persecution about it, you know what it does for me? It strengthens my enduring faith. Now, I'm not, I'm not anybody special. I'm not anybody special. I'm just saying that the Holy, when the Holy Spirit uses His Word to show you a truth, you don't care who's against it and you will persevere in that truth until the very end. I, I, I got I to say it, right? We have to. You're not a Reformed Baptist because it's popular. You're not reformed and biblical because it's the most welcome thing that makes you know uh, the free will of man feel so exciting. You're reformed and you're particularly reformed Baptist because it is the most, we believe, consistent interpretation of the harmony of Scripture. Amen. Now does that cause you, when you come to this little chapel here today, to doubt the power of God and the truth of His Word? No. What it ought to do is challenged you to do what the Apostle Paul challenged you to do, is to be a Berean and search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures and know why you believe what you believe. Don't believe we say it often because of tradition. Don't believe it because your family tells you to believe it. You believe it because the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that it is the right revelation of Almighty God. And that's what Enoch did. And when he did that, and all whatever variety of Lamech's friends and descendants out there tried to bring alongside him some kind of half-truth or whatever. No, 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 he said. This is the truth. I think that this picture that we're seeing from Jude about Enoch, it helps us to see that Enoch's walk with God was much more than a warm and fuzzy prayer life. It was a boldness that had grit to it. It was a boldness that was willing to sacrifice. It was a boldness that was willing to do things that were uncomfortable. And brothers and sisters, that's a mark of enduring faith. What are you challenged, what are you challenged with? Who is that person in your workplace you've been afraid to talk to? Because, oh man, 
I, I've been in situations, and sometimes I do it out of spite. I don't know if this is right or wrong. I mean, maybe you'll correct me after church. But you'll get some guys in the job site trailer out on the job site, and they're very vocal about their enmity against God. That like It's like they want to set the boundaries. Brother Ross, you had some guys like this. I remember at uh, the, the bell tire. They, they wanted to set the boundaries. Don't you even dare talk to me about Jesus. I know that's all hocus pocus, blah, 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 blah. And they just say it right, right when they meet you. They can smell your Christianity from across the room, and they know what you want to talk about, and they're going to shut you down. You know what I do? Boy, I just start becoming real good friends with them. You know what I mean? Because it's all a facade. They really hate God. Don't, 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 get, no, uh, don't get mixed up about that. They do. But uh, that, that tough facade at the end of the day, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl, they have a conscience. They have a conscience. And that's what you need to go after. So Enoch was willing to do this, friends, as we look at these people in the Old Testament. All right, I saved this to the last of the sermon. And time is running away from me, but friends, we have to do this. And I have to do it because of what A.J. pointed out in Romans 16. Paul marked the false teachers. Why did he do that? Because he cared about the ongoing maturity and discipleship of the church. If any of you go do deeper studies on this passage from Jude, you're going to find, you're going to come across the whole issue of the book of Enoch. I just want to see a show of hands. How many of you interact with people who have tried to come at you or blindside you in your Christian walk about the book of Enoch. Anybody? Okay. Well, we, uh, right here doing the neighborhood outreach, right here behind the church, the people that was behind us that were uh, witches, she was a self-identified witch, her brother or boyfriend, I don't remember who he was, he identified him, he tried to uh, catch me off guard and, and start asking me questions about the book of Enoch. And so you will run into this. Because even though Enoch isn't spoken much about in Scripture, we saw there's only a couple places, you get on the internet and there's controversies and there's all sorts of things about Enoch and especially what has been known as the book of Enoch. Jude here is quoting from an ancient, historical, extant book that has come to be known as the book of Enoch. That's what... Jude is quoting from. Look back at Jude if you're still there. Jude says in 14, Enoch also, the servant, the seventh from Adam, prophesied these sayings. And he, then he goes from 14b down to 15. Where did Jude get that? You're not going to find that nowhere in the Bible. Now, it used to be the way the people that were approached this text that they would say that this is. Uh, and we, and we, we would concede to this. We would say, of course, not everything that God revealed is contained in the Bible. John says the life and the ministry of Jesus, all the miracles he did, all, et cetera, et cetera, are not contained in Scripture because what's John say there? You would need a book from like, you know, the East is from the West or something. I'm, I'm butchering that, but you know that, that Scripture, right? So it used to be the way people handle this would say that the Holy Spirit is interpreting Enoch's life in Jude, and this is what Jude said. And that was fine until 1956 when archaeologists are digging around. And by the way, Christians don't care if archaeologists dig around. We have nothing to hide. We don't have anything to fear what they're going to find. They're just going to find things that validate the truth of the faith. Amen? But they found children amongst the ancient, most ancient copies of Scripture, the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
another collection of ancient writings. And those ancient writings have become known as the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch, like I said, is real. It's a collection of writings. It's dating upon the way they date those documents is around was written around 200 and 300 BC. So the ones they found in the Dead Sea Scroll, they date them. They say, okay, these, even though they're talking about things happened thousands of years ago, were only written 200, 300 years before the birth of Christ. And so they're there. This causes us to pause as we're looking at who Jude's quoting here and where they're coming from and what's going on with this book of Enoch and this man Enoch and everything. Knowing that these extant ancient documents were written 200, 300 years before the birth of Christ, immediately ought to rise up in a question in our minds who, for those who want to say they were authored by Enoch, well, okay, uh, they're not 3,000 years old. They're a couple hundred years old. The only, thing that could, the only way anything could have survived being authored by Enoch would be something that survived on Noah's flood. I think that that's highly problematic. The idea that there was secret knowledge or a secret book that Noah and his family tucked away and they took onto the ark. And then Noah later never brings that up, never talks about that. It never gets preserved in any of the oral traditions um, in, the, in the first five books of the, the Bible that Moses later writes about history. You don't see anything about what is contained in the book of Enoch. And so its dating is a little bit problematic. At least it's suspicious. We at least should ask questions. Now, on the whole, this collection of these writings known as the book of Enoch, they're highly messianic. And they're written in a genre that's highly focused, such as the book of Revelation, on the end of the age. The book of Enoch is talking about how sin came into the world. Uh, It isn't according to the biblical narrative. Uh, there's a lot of talk of the Nephilim. There's a lot of talk of angels uh, coming down and you know betroving children with the daughters of men, so forth and so on. And what happens here in this book of Enoch is that since it's so highly messianic, looking forward the promised Messiah, many of the early church fathers, such as Tertullian, they liked it. They said, I, we like this book because it It's further demonstrating the truth of who we know is Jesus Christ. Now, put this in perspective. You have in the the ancient traditions of of Judaism, the real man named Enoch, right? You have in ancient Judaism, the real carrying forth through the the seed of God, the true proto-evangelium, that there is going to be a Messiah, okay? Coming up to 200-300 B.C., since the last prophet Malachi, they had not heard from God in over 400 years. And so it is highly probable that what the book of Enoch, all that it is, is, and there was a lot of them at this time, and Paul had to confront a lot of them, there were sects of religious Jews, we would call them zealots, Uh, There was different societies of them. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they themselves, they believed that they were found amongst the society of people who broke out of Judaism. 
you can go do that research yourself. And they had a different spin that somehow the Messiah was going to be the Mark, Archangel, Archangel Michael, so forth and so on. Okay, So up in about 200, 300 years leading up to the birth of Jesus, everyone wants the Messiah. Everyone wants to be free from the yoke and the oppression of the Roman Empire. They want their Messiah to come and to do what they believe through the line of David he would do. And so it is very probable that what the book of Enoch is, is a book or a genre of a book that has within it some elements of truth, just like the Apocrypha, but it's not inspired scripture. It's a group of religious people writing about a true redemptive narrative but it's written in such a problematic way that there's no way that it can be inspired scripture. You could go yourself and just ask the question in your research, why is not the book of Enoch in canon? And you will see all the reasons. I'm not going to exasperate you with all the reasons because the time is short, but I'll give you the two main ones to help you guide your thinking your foundation as you approach that question. Because this is significant. Jude's quoting from this. And you will have many people who will challenge you in your trust of Scripture because they'll say, ah, see, Scripture, it really isn't uh, given to you by God. It's given to you by men. And they hid from you the book of Enoch. Don't you know 1956? Amongst the Dead Sea Scroll, the oldest copies of some of the Old Testament, there was these other secret books called the book of Enoch, which talks about this and talks about this, which then proves this and proves this. You see, they'll shake you up. And so as you explore the question of why Enoch's not in your Bibles, or are your Bibles correct, you need to remember this. I'm just going to give you two principles, okay? The analogy of faith or the harmony of the Scriptures is the first thing that concerns me with asking the question, is the book of Enoch Scripture? One of the greatest things that was ever taught to me in early ministry by my older brothers in the faith is that the Lord is giving us Scripture and allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. The harmony of Scripture. The analogy of the faith. This is proved in 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this verse, the inspired apostle said, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as these were moved by the Holy Ghost. The inspired scriptures present for us a consistent narrative, a consistent what we call analogy of faith. They're harmonious. When we may, and we do at times in our teaching and understanding and interpretation of scripture, when we may come up against something that perceives to be a contradiction, All that is is evidence that we lack clarity or knowledge of other portions of Scripture or the whole of the redemptive story of of God. And when we get that, then we see, oh, there's no contradiction here. That's usually what happens. So the Scriptures are harmonious. The analogy of faith is harmonious. I say all that to say that the so-called book of Enoch abounds with real contradictions regarding Serious and key doctrines in the Bible. According to the list that I found, there was 36 that would directly challenge the analogy of faith and the harmonious portions of Scripture that we have in our 
Protestant Bibles. And so if someone wants to make the book of Enoch into the Bible, and this is why the Protestants didn't want to break apocrypha books part of the Bible, is because they disrupt the consistent analogy of faith. God is not the author of confusion. God is not the author of contradictions. And so where there's abounding contradictions with the analogy of faith, especially on key things such as the origin of sin, uh, such as, you know, uh, the limits of angiology and demiology and other things such as this. Friends, that's serious errors. Heretical errors. And that's why the early church perceived very quickly that the book of Enoch, Tertullian liked it, but Tertullian is not the church. He was a smart guy in the church, but he wasn't the church. The church is all of us. And that leads me to the second point of why you have to be concerned of ever being tempted to say the book of Enoch was inspired by God. It's because the Holy Spirit is the one who gave us the the canon of Scripture. The Holy Spirit gave us our Bibles, dear friends. Not men, not a council of men. 2 Timothy 3.16 is the text we would go to remind ourselves that all Scripture is given by the breath of God, the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. It's essential for us to remember that the Bible is self-authenticating since its books were breathed out by God Himself. In other words, the way we know Scripture is Scripture is because God breathed it, and if God breathed it, it will have the distinct markings and will be recognized by the Holy Spirit within the hearts of men that it is the revelation of God. You see... The Holy Spirit, dear friends, gave us the canon of the Bible. The Holy Spirit gave us the inspired words of God. And the Holy Spirit enabled the church to recognize and to acknowledge the words of God. And so when the Acts of Peter, when the lost writings of Thomas, when the book of Enoch, or all the other ones that they're going to find, or they may find, or we have hot debates and controversies over, were laid on the table... Dear friends, the church of Christ, who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, looked at them all and said, they do not have the marks of God's breath. They do not have the marks of God's harmonious analogy of the redemptive story pointing to Christ. They cannot be authentic scripture. You see, it wasn't a council of men. It was the church. Uh, this is so important and fundamental to your bibliology of what you believe about the Bible. If the Bishop of Rome, let me put it this way, let's say Tertullian was a really good friend of the Bishop of Rome. And he said, hey, you need, really need to go into bat at that next council. You need to get the book of Enoch put in the Bible in the canon because if we miss this, I mean, it's just going to, you know, cause great confusion and, and great error in the church and we've got to have this. The Bishop of Rome, he goes in and he says, okay, everyone, this is my case for the book of Enoch. Do you think that the book of Enoch would have lasted in our Bibles? Absolutely wouldn't have. Because you and I and the church who have the Holy Spirit within us can discern what is and what is not the Word of God. And we would collectively stop using the book of Enoch. We wouldn't use it. We would see this isn't of God. This isn't the voice of God. This is how we have received God's revelation and His inscripted word as the church. People in councils, 
Only recognize they acknowledge what is true because it has the intrinsic inspiration and marks of God and himself and divinity in it, contained in it. Let me say this lastly, because a lot of times we don't think through our bibliology, but think about this. Just as creation, I wrote in my notes, is supernatural, we believe that God spoke all things into existence. Friends, so is the inscripturation and the preservation and the acceptance of that by the church. It's supernatural. It's done by faith. It was a work of God's Spirit early on at a critical point of redemptive history to give us our canon. Study why you have the canon. Study that out. It's so good. So what do we make about Jude's use of it? Because if Jude quotes it, it must be inspired. Right? After all, Jude does quote Enoch 1.9. I don't know anybody who's serious about the history and scholarship that would deny that. If it's not inspired scripture, then why is Jude quoting from it? Let me provide you an answer when the person challenging your trust in the Bible presents that to you. Jude did so simply because he was addressing in the context of his letter a problem of false teachers, wicked men in the line of Cain. And he's using an extra biblical document that all of his peers at that time would have known And therefore, when he uses it, he uses it to drive home his point of how detrimental and serious these men are. Another example of Scripture, citing extra scriptural sources to teach a biblical truth or to prove a point, would be the word logos in John 1.1. You guys know that Greek word of logos? It's never used in the Old Testament. Where do they get that from? Well, as many of the church fathers, including Justin Martyr, rightly recognizes, it was a long-standing philosophical concept that was taken by John out of the Roman Greco understanding of the spiritual realms to rightly identify and explain the eternal Son of God. Paul uses extra-scriptural phrases and concepts oftentimes from Roman Greek philosophy to teach biblical truth to a Roman Greco crowd who he's trying to evangelize and witness to. Many of the early church fathers did this. You do this. Have you ever been evangelizing someone and you mention a movie? You mention a book to try to prove the point to them of the truth that you're explaining? You're trying to illustrate the biblical doctrine? They try to emphasize the biblical truth that you're getting them to understand because you understand who they are and what context they live in. And I remember uh, talking to Brother Sukumar, who was here. I would say certain things, and like I was trying to emphasize the point. I was trying to use a cultural norm to me, and I would try to use it to him to prove a point. And he would look at me like, I, I kind of know what you're saying, but I really, I know you're trying to make a point, but I don't understand it. You know what I mean? And you get this a lot, especially. You know, if you're trying to talk to other people from other nationalities and cultural places. By Jude doing this, by Jude going back into the literary heritage of the Jews, which Jesus and his apostles would have been very familiar with, and pulling this quote out of the book of Enoch, it doesn't mean that what Jude is saying is a validation that the book of Enoch is inspired by God. Just as 
looking at the historical truth that's contained in the book of Maccabees does not evidence and validate that the Apocrypha is inspired by God. Why? Because going back to my first two principles, they carry serious contradictions to the analogy of faith, the harmony of Scripture, and unless the Holy Spirit through His church has been wrong for 2,000 years... The church has never accepted it. Has never said that's scripture. However, going back to Jude citing this, it is here because Jude saw that that quoting of that ancient writing would demonstrate the parallels that he was facing, that the first century church was facing in parallel with what Enoch was facing. Men who are wicked, lovers of self, etc., etc. So he's driving home that point to them. And he quotes something that they all would have been familiar with. Well, we still have one problem before we conclude. Does this mean then that what Jude quoted is not true of Enoch? Absolutely not, friends. Just as what's quoted in the historical books of Maccabees, so forth and so on, doesn't disprove that it was true historically. You see, what is going on with the book of Enoch is people who have a bunch of religious ideas about the beginning of sin, the beginning of history, all this stuff, the end of the age, and all this stuff, and the Messiah, and all this stuff, and they're blending it all together, and they're writing a Left Behind series. You follow me? They're writing a Left Behind series. It's got some truth in it. This could be a truth of Enoch. Doesn't mean it was inspired. And they added other bits and pieces in here. And now they got the book of Enoch. So are you forbidden of ever reading the book of Enoch? Absolutely not. You're not forbidden from reading the Apocrypha. (laughs) But you have to remember it's not inspired. The preface to the King James Bible says it's beneficial to know history. But you know it's not inspired. How do you know it's inspired? Because of the two principles I gave you. It contradicts the analogy of faith. So you read it with much discernment. You don't have to be afraid. When people are talking about the book of the Acts of Peter, the book of Lost Thomas, the, the Lost Book of Thomas, or the book of Enoch, friends, you don't have to be afraid to have those conversations. You would just say, dear friend, I, I know that's an extant document. I, I know it exists. But let me teach you how the Scriptures came into being. Get your bibliology under your feet. And you can interact in these arenas of ideas because a lot of people who want to challenge the faith they seize upon these it's like blood in a shark tank they think that you see i asked how many of you have been talking i'm surprised you haven't uh but if you start getting out there in the highways and byways and you're talking to people who i call them searchers they're searchers you see they, they know there's more life here and they're searching for something mysticism it's very prevalent nowadays it's been for the last 50 years Coming into the church a lot. And they're out there through movies and media. Eh, there's more out here. It's mysticism, right? They're searchers. They get on the internet. What do they do? Oh, the book of Enoch. Oh, here's part of truth. Now I know something that's going to guide me into truth. No, the word of God given to his church by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit confirmed within the church's hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's the truth. It's the roadmap. Get this stuff down, dear friends. So like Enoch, in the purpose of your existence, 
in the day and age in which you live, you can contend for the truth. As Jude said, that was once and for all delivered unto saints. Is the book of Enoch, Holy Spirit, inspired word of God? I think we can be pretty confident in saying, no, it's not. If it were scripture, we would expect to be free of contradictions against plain teachings of scripture and free of false doctrine. What we find instead is that false doctrine is one of the most prevalent themes in the book of Enoch. In conclusion of this man Enoch, in conclusion of his walk, in conclusion of his transport, I hope, going back to my introduction, dear friends, that we see and appreciate his example in Hebrews 11, that part of his enduring faith was understanding his existence for the day and age in which he lived. Take an inventory, brothers and sisters. Have any of us lost sight of that? I'd be the first one in here to raise my hand. I'm a very busy person, hustle and bustle, so forth and so on. And I stood convicted in this message that, oh God, never let me forsake the real purpose of my existence. Every person, every relationship you bring into my path, my time, so forth and so on. Let it be for the purpose of your glory and the proto-evangelium. The keeping forth, holding forth of the promise of the Messiah. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the day you have blessed us with. Lord, we thank you for the history that you have preserved in your inspired revelation. We thank you, Father, that you have faithfully superintended your inscripturated word. We thank you, Father, that you have kept and preserved faithfully the canon of what you wish to have to your bride, the followers of Jesus, so that we may be guided in all truth and all light. We thank you, Holy Father, that your spirit within the hearts of the early church was able to discern What is your revelation and what is not? And oh God, ultimately, the faith that you have granted to us, it helps us like Enoch, Lord, to take an inventory, to take time to be holy, to take time and to consider, oh God, as this world rushes on, why you have placed every single one of us into this created realm called earth. Even down, Lord, to the nation we live in, down to the state, down to the marriage, down to the family. Father, show us, lead us in the truth of your word and help us to walk with you. Lord, help all of us to do the very thing that many times, Lord, we are frightful of, we are doubtful of. Lord, we are weary and lack the energy to do Help us to use every fainting breath, O God, that you give us to keep the promise of the gospel held forth for the descendants of Lamech. O God, help us to have a vision for your glory. Help us to have a vision for the purpose of all of creation that we've sung to give you glory. It all is for the honor in the name of Jesus. I pray, O God, that you would particularly 
help and speak to the young adults in the church, the children. Oh, I wish, oh God, that you would have opened my eyes to see in my youthful years how harnessing an education, how harnessing, Lord, a proper perspective of my existence in this created realm. Oh God, how it would have, I would have been much more diligent in fitting myself, Lord, to be useful for you. God, help them to see that, I pray. Give them eyes, Lord, like Elijah who looked upon the mountaintops and he could see, Lord, the real reality of the host of all of your heavenly angels there, Lord, who is going to assist him in a great battle. God, help us, those of us, Lord, in the church who are getting uh, upper in years or in the middle of our lives. Lord, help us to be prayerfully cultivating in our hearts and our minds how that we still can live with great purpose for you, Lord. Lord, we have influence in our families and, and around our co-workers. Help us, Lord, to have that word in the right season. Help us to be, O oh God, the voice of Christ as if it were to the world around us. Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us guidance, we pray. We need it much, Lord. We thank you. We know that you will hear us, not because of ourselves, but because of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we pray, we ask these things in his holy name. Amen.